Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I want to start with a question. This is going to be one of those questions where you gaze deep into your own belly. And if you ask it out loud, you might annoy certain people around you. But I promise you it's actually interesting once you give it serious thought. And the question is, is you take a look at your hand and you think, why the heck is this called a hand? Hmm. Think about the the sounds you make with your mouth when you say the word hand or the marks you make on a page when you spell the word or even it, or in, say, like American Sign Language or another sign language, the gestures you would make to signal the concept of a hand. Somehow those sounds you make with your mouth or the marks you make on the page or the gestures cause other people's brains to call up the concept of one of these five-legged meat spiders that's attached <laughs> to the end of our wrists. And in fact, I often think about this, that one of the really creepy and astonishing things that we usually just forget to notice about ourselves and our bodies and our brains and the power of language is that in most cases, you are completely powerless to resist the conjuring power of a word. Yeah, you, you ever think about this? Like, yeah. unless you have some kind of unusual neurological condition, if you understand the language I'm speaking and I say – a giant crocodile crawling up the side of the Eiffel Tower with a bouquet of roses in its mouth, you will have no choice but to envision or at least understand the concept of what I just said. Words have so much power over your brain that most people most of the time can't even turn off their understanding of them if they want to. We live in a world where like particular patterns of mouth sounds and marks on a page are literally a way of controlling the contents of somebody else's mind. Yeah, which which when you think of it that way, it makes total sense that some people are like, hey, I would prefer you not use a bunch of vulgar language around me, uh-huh. you know? Um which I, I have always found is sometimes weird in, say, an office environment where, uh, you know, certain individuals will feel like, you know, they need to use a lot of vulgarity when they're talking. But you're mm-hmm. really in many times taking like particularly vulgar uh, images and you are forcing them into everybody's mind around you. And, and it's perfectly reasonable to say, no, thank you. Yeah, I'm of two minds about this. I mean, on one hand, I I, I do definitely have a strong sort of innate anti-censorship streak. But mm-hmm. then on the other hand, I recognize that like, yeah, anybody who says like, what's the big deal is just words. That is really underselling the power <laughs> of words. Words are like one of the most powerful things in the universe. Yeah, uh, and but to think about like just the the casual way that 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 you can summon. Uh, imagery with the word. Uh, you, you brought up hand. Yeah. And I was thinking, all right, what are some other connotations? Like I basically tried to to understand the idea by breaking the idea. Like what's another important concept or notable concept to me involving hand or something, you know? And uh, I thought, well, okay, but you have the, the movie Dark City. Yeah. Uh, where you have the, the the character Mr. Hand. That's Richard O'Brien, right? Yeah, yeah, plays one of the strangers. But But now that I think about it, like that's a great example of how you can just call this character – Mr. Hand, and in thinking about him, looking at him, you also end up contemplating what a hand is and what a hand does and the form of the hand and kind of melding it with the idea of a shadowy individual. Absolutely. And this is why, you know, metaphors and poetry and everything are so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's like you, when you use one word to describe a thing that it doesn't di- – isn't directly a sign for, you you cause all this kind of like cross-linking within the brain that is often very evocative and exciting. Yeah, like if you say introduced a character in a work and his name was Dr. Chainsaw, like that would <laughs> – Yeah. That, that brings – there are a number of conflicts arise and uh, I can't help but then try and imagine who uh, Dr. Chainsaw is. That's funny, but what you say I think is is more thoughtful and profound than you, than you might realize at first glance. We'll, we'll, we'll think about this more as we go on. Okay. So a lot of times when we ask this question, like, why do we call a hand a hand? Why is that the sound we make with our mouths or the, you know, H-A-N-D, the marks on a page? Where does that word come from? We're usually asking a historical question that can have a relatively straightforward answer, right? This is the domain of etymologies. Yeah, and we do this all the time on the show, right? We talk about some concept or some character – 
from myth and legend and we break down what their name means, yeah. where it comes from. Right. And you you can do this with most words. Like you can trace it back through older versions of languages. Uh, one example we've mentioned on the show before that I really enjoy is how obsolete scientific hypotheses that are we know aren't true anymore mm-hmm. are sometimes still included in our language, the words we use for things. Uh, take the English word malaria. I mean, you know, this is a word for a certain disease caused by a protozoan parasite. But malaria comes from the Italian words mal and area, meaning bad air. So the name we use for this disease incorporates miasma theory, which mm-hmm. proposed that diseases were caused by exposure to foul-smelling vapors that emanated from the earth or from planets or from things like rotting carrion. Did we do an episode on miasma theory? Oh, yeah, we absolutely we did. did. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, it was uh, earlier, I think maybe it was last year. Uh, and we talked in the episode about how the word malaria, so it reflects miasma theory, this incorrect understanding of where diseases come from from before germ theory took hold. And the fact that even the French physician uh, Charles-Louis Alphonse Laveron who discovered the fact that malaria was caused by a parasitic organism in the blood, he hated the word malaria. He didn't like that uh, because he considered it unscientific. So instead, he recommended the term uh, uh, paludisma, which essentially means like marsh or swamp fever or swamp disease. And this is still the French word for the disease. Hmm. So anyway, many words can be tracked back through the history of evolving languages like this. And in fact, pretty much all words can. Uh, But you can only follow this trail so far because if you go back far enough, you run out of ways to track words as straightforward cases of evolving species or adoption from other languages. Like at some point, words had to be created for things and concepts that had no explicit word before and no analogies to draw from. So once you get back to like the initial case, you have to wonder, how did this happen? How is a word born? And does a word inherently mean anything? Why did the speakers of the earliest words pick one set of mouth sounds for hand and a different set of mouth sounds for tree and a different set of mouth sounds for mother? What do these sounds mean anything? And if they do mean anything, what do they mean? Interesting. So, I mean, it, we're, we're kind of dealing with some of the same properties uh, that we've discussed uh, on the show and that we've, we, uh, uh, regarding, say, uh, the evolution of Chinese characters. Yes. Where they, in, in their very primitive origins, they were essentially tiny pictures of what you were talking about. Uh-huh. Uh, and then as they evolve, they become more uh, eloquent in design, more abstract, mm-hmm. uh, not, and then sometimes abstract in meaning as well. Uh, but, but certainly they no longer look exactly like the thing, uh, like the word for, you know, for a, a person is no longer looks like a tiny person, that sort of thing. So we might be – we're potentially talking about the same thing with words themselves. Like how – if you trace it back far enough, do you have simply – a word is a sound for a thing. It's not even a word yet. It's just the sound for the thing. And then how did we get that sound? How did you decide that that is the sound for that thing? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And I want to go ahead and say we're not going to answer this question today. I mean, there are whole this is a whole field of study yeah. about the origins of language, where it came from. You know, we could write whole books on this subject, and I, I am sure we will revisit this in the future. But we wanted to look at one specific strange class of word today and, and some some light it sheds on what words are and how we how we use language. So a minute ago, we asked that idea of like, do sounds inherently mean anything in, in a lexicographic sense? And one of the key ideas of modern linguistic theory is that the answer to that question is no. That the signs we use to refer to concepts, so like the sounds you make with your mouth or the markings you make on a page when you're indicating a concept like hand or mother or something like that, these signs are arbitrary. They do not have inherent meaning. and They're arbitrarily associated with the concepts they call to mind. So to quote from the Swiss semiotician and linguist Ferdinand de Sajur, uh, who is often cited as like the founder of the modern study of linguistics, quote, The bond between the signifier and the signified is arbitrary. Since I mean by sign the whole that results from the associating of the signifier with the signified, I can simply say the linguistic sign is arbitrary. The idea of sister is not linked by any inner relationship to the succession of sounds uh, and then he spells out the the French for sister, sir, which serves as its signifier in French. 
that it could be represented equally by just any other sequence is proved by differences among languages and by the very existence of different languages. The signified ox has as its signifier boeuf on one side of the border, as in the French for ox's uh, boeuf, and ox on the other. And so we know, uh, like we, we know today, that to some extent what uh, Sazir says here must be true, right? At least to some extent, because of course words are not fixed in sound or in visual notation. Words evolve over time. Words come to mean different things. They come to be pronounced differently, often in multiple stages that we can track through history. Right. I mean, a recent example of this on our show, we're t- t- trying to figure out what puppy meant. As, oh, yeah. a, as a form of insult in, uh, in in ages prior. Oh, yeah, where apparently Isaac Newton called this guy he was harassing a puppy. We're like, what the heck does that mean? But apparently it means like a fop. Right. Like, yeah, it, it's the same word. Basically means the same thing except in certain contexts, and, and that has changed over time. But those those minor differences we can acknowledge between, say, like early modern English and the English of today can become radical differences over longer periods of time. But you might say, well, wait a minute, doesn't the widespread literacy of the world and the printing press change all this? Aren't words fixed once they're in print? Obviously, they're not. (laughs) Like, just read a play of Shakespeare or something else from the early modern period and compare that to the language of modern English. This is just a few hundred years ago. This is not that long ago, but you'll find tons of words that have changed in meaning, spelling, connotation, or have simply disappeared from everyday use. If you doubt this, I will bet you 40 firkins of posset and barm on it. <laughs> yeah, or just try and read, uh, say, uh, The Hobbit yeah. uh, to, to, uh, to, to a child, and you're going to run across certain words where it's like, oh, well, this just meant uh, uh, that, uh, that, you know, now this is a, a slur word, but in its original context that Tolkien was using, he's talking about a bundle of sticks. Another writer might be using the word and they're talking about a, what, a cigarette or something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, words can change sometimes for the worse. Oh, that's absolutely true. In fact, I was just thinking about uh, – this even happens, you know, with, with letters. Have you ever read the the early 17th century poem The Flea by John Donne? Ooh, I, it's probably been a long time. You know, Donne was a great – poet. I mean, he, he wrote great, like, devotional poetry, but he also wrote, like, seduction poetry. Mm-hmm. The Flea is is just absolutely nasty. <laughs> it's a poem where he's essentially begging for sex uh, by making this questionable recourse to the idea that if a flea bites two different people, they've basically slept together already. <laughs> and uh, so they might as well not resist any temptation. He says, quote, Mark but this flea, and mark in this, how little that which thou deniest me is. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee. And in this flea, our two bloods mingled be. Yeah, he's, he's really stretching, I think, with that one. Yeah, what a creep. But then <laughs> it's even funnier if you read it in older printed versions where S's making the S sound don't look like they do today. Back then, they looked like a modern lowercase f. So like uh, so this would have impacted the the word suck or sucked. Yes. Uh, it would have become a much more uh, by modern standards vulgar term. Though this is already, I think, a pretty nasty poem. It, it just gets a slight <laughs> nastiness upgrade. But then in the same way that concepts are described by different words across time, obviously they're also described by different words at the same time between different languages. So the Basque word for hand is escua, and the Malay word for hand is tangan, and so forth. So obviously the concept of hand is in no way intrinsically linked to the English H sound or the D consonant or anything like that. The, this does seem to be truly arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that the hand does not make a sound, per se, you know? <laughs> well, it can, of course, but yeah, it doesn't inherently make a sound. Right. And that's a good thing to point out because while I think it's it's pretty much inarguable that, that Sazur is correct in many cases that like most words in most languages don't have any inherent link between the sound you make with your mouth and what the word means, there are some words that inarguably do. How about the word cock-a-doodle-doo? Oh, yeah, this is a great one. Uh, this is always a fun exercise. Anytime you travel somewhere uh, the, where they, they speak a different language, mm-hmm. or even if they speak just a, a variant of your own language, ask them what sound a rooster makes. And the uh, it's always going to be some variation of the same sound, but uh, at times with surprising variety and exactly how that sound is realized in language. Oh, yeah, I love this. Like looking at different languages, words for like what a dog 
does. Like the, a dog doesn't bark in every language. But in pretty much every language, whatever word they've got for what a dog sound is, mm-hmm. you can hear it. You're like, oh, yeah, that, that's what a dog sounds like. Yeah. Uh, David Sedaris has a fun bit where he talks about this in uh, I believe it was a, a Christmas essay uh, called uh, Six to Eight Black Men about uh, – it, mainly dealing with variations in the Santa Claus tradition, mm-hmm. uh, the title referring to certain European traditions in which Santa is attended by uh, by personal slaves with black skin. Uh, but he also talks a little bit about you know variations in how people say uh, what the, the rooster says. Man, it is shocking how disturbing some of those Santa traditions are. Oh yeah, it gets dark, but it is it's the holidays. It's, you know, I guess it's supposed to be dark and weird. But I got another word for you. One of my favorites, plop. Oh, plop. plop. That's a good one. It's the sound that a drop makes when it hits another body of water. So if you a drop falls into a bucket, it plops. Oh, I was thinking it's also the sound of a cat throwing up on the hardwoods. That's, <laughs> that's probably the context I encounter more often. Like you hear that plop, you know you're cleaning up something. You, well, you'd think it would be like a splat, but no, it is a very polite sounding kind of plop, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, belies how gross it's going to be. <laughs> Uh, But yeah, so these are known as onomatopoeia in English, words that make a sound that's close to the sound of the concept being named. Uh, So like the noun naming a rooster's call, the cock-a-doodle-doo, obviously is meant to sound like the call itself. Same thing with plop. It's meant to sound like the concept you're talking about. And, you know, onomatopoeia for some reason are just great fun to say usually. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love like glug. That's a glug, glug. Glug is good. good. Hiss. That's an onomatopoeia. Mm -hmm. Quack. Oink, squeak. Toot. Toot is a fun one. Yeah. yeah kind yeah. of, yeah. Burp is, is perhaps one as well. What do you think burp. about burp? Yeah, that, that, I think that could be an onomatopoeia, yeah. yeah. No, I think some of these could probably be false onomatopoeia where, uh, I don't know for sure, but if you like looked up the etymology, you could find that they're derived from some other word in uh, history that doesn't actually sound as, and it's just a coincidence. But a lot of them clearly are onomatopoeia. Like they're, the word comes from the sound the thing makes. I wonder about the, how about the sounds that, uh, or the words that flash on the screen when Batman punches somebody. Yeah. You know, are those, uh, uh, are we talking about, is, is that a case of onomatopoeia? Biff. Yeah, biff, boff, etc. How about uh, plink, plonk, ploop, plop, slosh, splash? Yeah, those are those are those all seem pretty solid. I notice how a lot of English onomatopoeia. Maybe this is just because they're the words I could think of, but it seems to me like a lot of them are sounds for sounds that animals make or words for what water does or what happens in water. Hmm. Another one, a uh, great one, is twinkle. Wait a minute. Oh. Did you catch me there? It's a trick, I think. Did you notice that Twinkle, when I very first said it, did you think, yeah, that's a good one too? I probably would have thought that. That's a good onomatopoeia. Pale stars twinkle in the night sky. What do you hear when you envision that sentence? I hear a twinkling. Yeah, I I picture stars twinkling almost in a cinematic sense, Mm -hmm. like twinkling more than they actually appear to twinkle in the night sky. But there's a little almost kind of bell sound that goes with the word, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I think about uh, when William Wordsworth writes, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way. Of course, he's he's talking about flowers. He's talking about daffodils. And he's comparing them to stars by the way they move back and forth in the breeze. He says, 10,000 I saw at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. Uh, Here's another one you might have heard before. Uh, Twinkle, twinkle, little star. (laughs) Uh, that, yeah, that's another another famous version. Which, by the way, here's a mind blower for at least some listeners out there. I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't realize till last couple of years that uh, it's the same song as the ABC song with just different lyrics. Try that out for size. I got to pick my jaw up off the ground. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of no, that. I never, no one ever made Whoa. that. I never made that connection before. But then I, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. If you, yeah, it's exactly the same song. Did you know lyrics. that London Bridge is falling down is the same tune as? That classic old English folk rhyme, happy, happy Halloween, 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 silver shamrock. Oh, well, yes, there, there is that. <laughs> you know, one that's a less conventional use of twinkle uh, that I really like is in Walt Whitman. He's got a, a poem about a shuddering locomotive. I think it's called like To a Locomotive in Winter where he says, Thy knitted frame, thy springs and valves, the tremulous twinkle of thy wheels. Hmm. But the the weirdness is twinkle feels like an onomatopoeia to me. Yeah. It feels exactly like plop or, or, or ploop or quack. But it's not an onomatopoeia. I mean, we know that. Like 
The stars don't make a sound, but part of me rebels. Of course Twinkle's an onomatopoeia. It really feels like one. Twinkle, twinkle is the sound that stars make when their brightness fluctuates. And of course that isn't true, but I, I just know it's true, even though it's not. The stars don't make a sound, and yet that's the sound they make. And I believe this sense of the false onomatopoeia of twinkle is even sort of suggested in the way the word is used in some rhymed poetry. Uh, like, writers seem to sense a deeper parallel between twinkle and a true onomatopoeia word, uh, like in Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Bells. Oh, that's a great one. Do you want to read it? Oh, sure. Hear the sledges with the bells, silver bells. What a world of merriment their melody foretells. How they twinkle, tinkle, tinkle in the icy air of night. While the stars that oversprinkle all the heavens seem to twinkle with a crystalline delight. So yeah, tinkle is like the onomatopoeia of the bells. Yeah. But then the stars also twinkle as if that's like the same thing. Uh, fun fact, uh, folk singer Phil Oakes uh, it was one of probably many people to set Poe's uh, poem to music. Oh, I don't think yeah, I've heard that. it's a fun little folk song. What a world of merriment their melody foretells. You know, it's a fun little tune. Cool. I'll have to look that up. But anyway, I, I like the idea here that if a word is, like we were talking about earlier, like a form of mind control, it's a way of just without a person's consent controlling the contents of their brain. Twinkle is a form of mind control that drives us to believe in a contradiction. The word is like an onomatopoeic simulacrum. It's an attempt to copy a thing that does not exist, the sound of a bright light varying in intensity. And I just wonder, why do we feel this so deeply? I mean, maybe everybody else doesn't feel it as strongly as I do, but I feel like this is a, probably a common sensation. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of any that, that resonate particularly strongly with me. I guess sometimes there's a very strong word for like various facial expressions, you mm -hmm. know, and we feel facial expressions very strongly because they are, you know, nonverbal forms of communication. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, I don't know, the, the, this may not hold up when we start tearing it apart here, but uh, for someone to gawk at something. Yeah. It's not like the face makes the sound, the sound gawk. But if you were to make that argument for me, you know, like the, this is a sound, like it, it, it almost feels like a sound in the mind if you're seeing somebody that is visibly gawking at something. Yes, it's a word that doesn't just have a lexical definition that you understand, but it has, uh, it has like a sensory force. Right. It delivers a sensory feeling by saying the word. Now, I'm just, this is just coming off the top of my head, so so I'm, I'm sure later if I – when I look up gawk, I, I can, you know, you'll be able to tease apart the, uh, the the history of the word and where it comes from and what its uh, linguistic uh, origins are. Well, as we said earlier, I mean it's possible for there to be like false onomatopoeias yeah. where something you would think is just copying the sound of something but actually you can show where it derives from other words in a language that maybe don't even originally sound so much like the thing. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so one answer as to why we feel these kind of connections between like the feeling or sound of a word and a concept that is not actually a sound or does not sound like the concept. Um, one, one answer would simply be that we're culturally conditioned to feel this strange kind of synesthesia with the meaning of a word simply because we know what the word means. We've learned it. We've learned to think of it this way and it's just conditioning, right? But the answer also might not be that simple and I think maybe we should take a break and then come back and look at some words in other languages. All right, we're back. So I was inspired uh, to talk about this today in, in this episode by an article that I read in Eon Magazine by a writer named David Robson. And in this article, uh, Robson begins his article with a list of Japanese words and then asks non-Japanese-speaking readers to guess what they mean given a couple of like antonymic options, you know, a word in its opposite. So if you do not speak Japanese, consider the following word, nuru nuru. Okay. I'm sorry if I'm not saying that exactly right, but it's something like that. Nuru nuru. Does that word mean dry or slimy? Um, it sounds slimy to me. Yeah, it sounds slimy to me too. And in fact, that is what it means. Here's another Japanese word. Waku waku. Does that mean excited or bored? That sounds excited to me. It sounds excited to me too. Here's another one. Pika pika. Does that mean dull or sparkly? Uh, that sounds sparkly. Yeah, It also sounds sparkly to me. And we're, we're correct in all three cases. Mm. Those are the real meanings. And if, like us, you do not speak Japanese and yet you can correctly guess the meanings of those words, 
you're not alone. Uh, according to a 2016 study by uh, in the psychology journal Calabra by Lockwood et al., almost three quarters of Dutch participants were able to correctly identify the meanings of these words without knowing them. But how is it possible if you don't speak a language to know what words in a language mean when they're not words for things with sounds. They're not onomatopoeia. It's not like moo or something. Right, right. These are cases where it's coming down more to, I mean, the obvious point being the the K sounds, right? Those sharp Ks, which sound, and it's hard to even put that in words why, but they sound pointy, right? Yeah, yeah, they sound pointy. They sound sparkly bright somehow. Yeah. Uh, and th- this is not just our opinion. We'll, we'll come back and cite some evidence about this in a minute. But anyway, uh, Robson cites these as examples of words that are known as idiophones. And these are words that are – the way I would try to describe it, though this is a, a concept that can be kind of hard to define as we'll discuss as we go on. But they're words that are kind of like onomatopoeia, but there's no original sound that they're copying. Instead, they're described by by Lockwood and co-authors as, quote, sound symbolic words. And I think this is uh, a common way of describing them in the, in the scientific literature. And what that means is that by the sound of the word, they tend to strongly evoke a sensation, like a sight or a tactile feeling, and you don't need to know the language or know the word already to understand what that feeling is supposed to be or at Mm. least get close to what that feeling is supposed to be. You've never heard the word nuru nuru before, but it definitely sounds more slimy to you than it sounds like dry or something else. And there, there are different kinds of idiophones in different languages. Some languages are much richer in them than other languages are. But like Japanese is an example of a language that has a good number of idiophones. And uh, uh, Willem Lockwood, one of the authors of uh, that paper I cited a second, a second ago in a blog post, writes that these these words create a very vivid image or uh, this this strong feeling that normal lexical words just don't. Quote, when a Japanese person hears the word kirakira, meaning sparkly, it is like they can actually see the thing that is sparkly. How sound symbolism works, however, is not quite clear, and there have not yet been many neuroscience studies on it, but the research so far suggests that hearing sound symbolic words might involve other forms of sensory perception in a similar way to how people with synesthesia associate colors with letters. Huh, interesting. But you can probably already tell just from us talking so far that that this idea of the sound symbolic word is kind of difficult to pin down exactly. It's going to involve like related concepts across different languages because different languages have different qualities that can be used to evoke these things. You know, this this reminds me of, of uh, you know, I've read before about how, you know, K sounds, uh, mm-hmm. either hard Ks or soft Ks uh, uh, or even um, – even like the the ch- sound of of cheese, uh-huh. how these are inherently funny sounds, huh. you know. But um, uh, but then again, you know, we're thinking of like like sparkly excitement. Like those are also kind of the signifiers of of things that are funny, right? Uh, they they're not dull. They're exciting. They're evocative in some form or another. Yeah. But it's really hard to really tease out exactly why. Well, to be very clear, we don't want to suggest that all words are idiophonic. No. uh, Because I I think it's totally clear that probably most words in most languages are actually arbitrary signs and the sound has nothing to do with what they mean. Yeah, and a word like clown is potentially funny because the concept of the clown is funny. Cheese itself is inherently funny. I mean, if you had no word for what this was, it's still like this soft, smushy thing that has a distinctive odor to it, but that is also delicious. We, uh, we, scree- we squeeze goat udders and we get the stuff out of it and yeah. then we like boil that and separate it. It's and, basically a practical joke of the gods as it is. So, yeah. uh, you know, we can't help but laugh. But clearly while one of the interesting features of these idea of, of idiophonic words is that they are somewhat detectable across language differences. Like you don't necessarily have to speak the language to understand what some of them mean. Uh, th- there are ways that languages are going to kind of change the way they're used, right? Like you can think of like tonal languages versus non-tonal languages. Yeah, I was uh, I was looking around at some of the the papers that because the thing is when you start looking at papers on audiophones, a number of them are 
you know, they're, they're focusing in on one particular language or a couple of different languages. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking around at some that, uh, that looked at, uh, at ideophonic words in, say, Mandarin. Mm-hmm. No, not that I speak Mandarin, but I've at least read about it enough that I have, like, some, you know, base understanding of, 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 of what it is mm-hmm. uh, linguistically. And uh, I, I did run across, um, it says, from uh, Qinzi Ming's uh, uh, idiophonic words in Mandarin, and um, the, the author points out that there's perhaps some difficulty in settling on a unified ideophone definition that works across all languages, quote, or even within a language. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they wrote, quote, ideophones are much likely to be proposed as different categories under different names in different – in terms of different uh, criteria within a certain language. Hmm. Uh, so there is this kind of elusive nature to, to really like pinning it down, you know, well, it, it certainly to create any kind of like unified definition of ideophone. That's one of the senses I'm getting from the, this paper and others that I looked at. I think the closest I can find is that the, uh, the, the sign of the word itself, either the sound or the markings on a page or whatever, mm-hmm. generates a sensation other than a sonic one. Okay. Yeah. So that it could be like a, a tactile feeling or the the belief that you're seeing something or like just an association with feelings or images or uh, or maybe even like smells or tastes or something. And I think especially if that can be detected by people who have never encountered the word before in use and don't know what it means in context. I got another exercise for us to, to practice okay. here to, to figure this out. So, Robert, I, I've attached a couple of images here. You, you may have seen this experiment before. You may already know where we're going with this. But um, describe these two images briefly. Okay. One is uh, like a sharp-pointed kind of shuriken shape. Okay. And the other is uh, something that looks kind of like a splat, uh, <laughs> like a cartoon splat, like a cartoon paintball uh, shape, also kind yeah. of reminiscent of uh, – you know, a bizarre clover. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's a very good way of putting it. Image on the left is like kind of like a pointy star. Image on the right sort of like a, a, a splatty cloud. Now, let's say I give these two images names. I'm not going to tell you which is which, but one is named Molly and one is named Kate. Okay. Which is which? Well, if we're going to go back to some of these ideas we've been dealing with, Kate has that K sound. It's yeah. going to be sharper. It's going to be pointier. Yeah. And Molly has that kind of... Um, I mean, it, I, I may be overthinking. That's kind of the problem with this, right? You start mm-hmm. thinking about it too much. You're not dealing with the direct. Yeah. Um, we're, we're not coming at this clean. We've already been <laughs> yeah. talking about the what sounds feel like. Yeah. But I feel like pretty instinctively we would say that Kate is the one with the sharp angles and Molly is the one with the rounded cloud edge. Right. And a large portion of people would actually agree that this is the answer. And it works not just for those names. That's just one type of example. But uh, this this experiment has been done giving them names like Kiki and Booba. Oh, yes, the Kiki Booba. And yeah. uh, Takete and Maluma. Mm-hmm. And in research, uh, this has been multiple experiments over the past century or so by like Wolfgang Kohler, uh, V.S. Ramachandran, and others. Kohler, definitely sharp and pointy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's both kind of right because the K is sharp and pointy, but the OL, that sounds like Ooh, yeah. round to me. So like why this inherent – and th- this apparently works in not all cases, but in most cases that it's been tried across language differences. So apparently sharp angles sound like T and K and round clouds sound like M and L and round vowels like OO. And this isn't the only example. For some reason, it just seems that across different cultures and different languages, we're pretty consistent, not always consistent, but pretty consistent in associating certain types of human mouth sounds with particular non-auditory sensations like sights and geometric angles and feelings. And so uh, uh, to to read a quote from uh, Robson here from his article, he's talking about a strain of linguistics that's now taking idiophones more seriously as a subject, quote, Language is embodied, a process that involves subtle feedback for both listener and speaker between the sound of a word, the vocal apparatus, and our own experience of human physicality. Taken together, this dynamic helps to create a connection between certain sounds and their attendant meanings. These associations appear to be universal across all human societies. Interesting. So it's sounding like when we when we, we – 
when we're we're trying to comprehend some of these uh, these sound words, like we're potentially connecting in like like the pre language. Uh, verbal communication skills of our species. Yeah, it, it's quite possible. And we, we should come back to that at the end of the episode. Um, but yeah, there, there appears to be some kind of primordial association that somewhat transcends culture that associates certain mouth sounds with certain types of sights or feelings. And so we know one example now is that like T's and K's look like sharp angles and, and like B's and M's and L's mm-hmm. feel like round rounded edges. Here's some more. Uh, he uh, Robson cites the research of a guy named Diedrich uh, Westerman who found that across different languages in Western Africa, the E sound like in cheese or peak or twinkle was often associated with concepts that were light, fine, or bright, while the back vowels in the mouth like walk or fast were associated with concepts of slowness, heaviness, and darkness. And uh, so at the same time, there were associations with consonants, right, not just the vowels. Consonants like B and G, like B and G, were associated with heaviness and softness, while voiceless consonants like P and K, P and K, were associated with harder surfaces and lighter weight. And just contemplating these, again, we're not coming at this clean. We're, you know, having these observations already color our thinking. But I totally feel like this rings true with my feeling of sound sensations, at least as an English speaker. Like if we imagine two totally new made-up words for animals in a made-up country. So we're we're going to an island that's never been discovered before and we're seeing some fauna there. Uh, one uh, One piece of fauna is a tiny yellow crab that runs quickly across the sand. And the other animal is a large, blubbery, semi-aquatic mammal that looks kind of like a hippopotamus. And the two names for these creatures are Pikikiki and Gubba Gubba. (laughs) Which one is which? Well, Gubba Gubba definitely has to be that hippo creature for sure. Exactly. But why? Because it just sounds like a Gubba Gubba. (laughs) Like if (laughs) – yeah, it's it's, it's just that's, that's the sound. Like to reverse those names would be a cause for comedy itself, wouldn't it? Right. Yeah, I think it would. Yeah, like if the if the hippo was Piki Kiki and the uh, and the crab was Gubba Gubba, that would be funny. That would almost seem like, well, that's absurd. Why would you call them those? Well, but the thing is, once if you if you establish them as such, I I don't know. I might on some level find it funny because those are funny words anyway. Uh. You shake it, and then the idea of a crab having a name is also inherently funny, mm-hmm. but. I would I would probably just buy it. Like I would begin to associate the name, like the sound of the name with perhaps the personality of the creature. Like suddenly I go beyond thinking like Gubba Gubba is just like this blubbery animal. But maybe like Gubba Gubba sums up the personality of this cartoon crab that we're introducing, you know? Like it, it's, it's, it's easy to, again, over – to overthink and overshoot just the sort of initial reaction that should be taking place when we hear the sound. Yeah. Now, to bring it back to tonal languages, like uh, like Mandarin Chinese, of course, is a tonal language. Uh, Robson writes that uh, Westerman also discovered sound symbolic connotations with the tones used in tonal languages. So, so it applies somewhat there too. For example, uh, even though English doesn't really uh, employ tonality to signal meaning, in the languages that do that Westerman was studying, he found a general trend that, quote, words were representing slowness, dryness, and heaviness hmm. tended to have lower tones. And then meanwhile, things depicting, quote, speed, agility, and brightness were formed by higher tones. I don't know if you have a general sense of that in in your experience trying to speak Chinese, but... I, I can't say that I've progressed enough to where I can really break that down now. Yeah. I'm trying to think of some good examples offhand. I'm sure they'll come to me uh, uh, after the podcast, though. So the question, of course, is what explains these really common and apparently often, not always, but pretty often cross-linguistic associations? And one idea is that there is some sort of mental feedback that's created by the sensation in the body from making a sound, right? Mm -hmm. So like uh, with Kiki and Booba, one idea would be, well, when you say Booba, you say ooh, and the mouth there makes a round shape. And maybe we intuitively associate the rounding of our lips with round, soft edges in an image. That's possible, right? Yeah. 
Another example here would be um, matching sensations in the body in the case of things we do with our noses that usually involve nasal sounds. So uh, uh, think about like snort, sniff, sneeze, snout, snore. Mm, You can't say the N without the nose. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I keep uh, I, I keep running uh, Mandarin words I do know through my head uh-huh. <laughs> and trying to figure out like where they would fall. Like bow comes to mind, uh, you know, uh, uh, it certainly has like a round, soft consistency to it. What does it mean though? Uh, oh, it's you know, it's uh, the food, the uh, bow. Oh, like a bun. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and then you know, other words like 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 ba, depending on how you um, uh, hit it. Um, uh, uh, tonally, like that, that can mean father, which doesn't quite uh, really fall into what we're talking about here. Yeah, and I'm trying. I'm sort of uh, hurting my brain trying to think of some good sharp-sounding words that aren't names. Uh, but at any rate, uh, again, I'm sure all of this will will come to me after we're done recording. It's interesting how we start once we're asked to observe this. You start looking for it in all the words, even though we know that most words are not idiophones. Yeah, but we still like I I start seeing correlations there in all kinds of words where it might just be, you know, me me losing my mind here. But like uh, I start thinking about like, oh, what about all the the this words that start with gr? Mm-hmm. You know, you notice like growl, grunt, groan. Like, what is the yeah. deal with that? Growl, grunt, groan, grumble. They all start with gr, which sort of like almost evokes this kind of natural sense of something being like a problem or a burden. Yeah, and then you get into words like great. Uh, how does that work? You yeah. Know? Uh, so, I mean, clearly I think maybe the mind is going to places where yeah. uh, where it's not quite fruitful. But anyway. It, it's to hard get, to really – to take a word and think about it without the context of its meaning and, and how that meaning kind of, um, you know, dilutes through culture. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I guess we should we should get back to the uh, possible explanations for why this could okay, be. Okay, yeah. A, another one that Robson mentions in his article uh, is just the idea that when some types of idiophones occur, there is a kind of cross-contamination between sensations in brain regions. That so this could be literal just like uh, cross-linking or kind of bleed over in the brain, right? Mm-hmm. A type of synesthesia. And of course, synesthesia is, quote, a neurological condition in which stimulation of one sensory or cognitive pathway, for example, hearing, leads to automatic involuntary experiences in a second sensory or cognitive pathway, such as vision. And that's a, a definition from psychology today. But uh, synesthesia is an interesting concept in itself. Like how come people associate certain uh, like letters with colors or like feelings with with sounds or something? Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, because it's w- without having experienced synesthesia, it, it is what's taking place in the mind is um, it, it does feel like that kind of direct connection, you mm-hmm. know? Um, uh, the, 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 the difficulty in describing it kind of uh, uh, seems to match up there. Well, for me, almost saying saying twinkle is like some of the closest I get to synesthesia. Yeah. Because that's – it's the sound a star makes again. And the star doesn't make a sound, but I can sort of hear it and it's the word twinkle. Yeah, it's like saying, why is this note purple? That yeah. sort of thing. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this concept a little bit more. All right. We're back. So I, I was looking around uh, – for some commentary on ideophones. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to see, like, well, what's an example of somebody sort of poo-pooing on ideophones mm-hmm. uh, to sort of use an, an, an ideophone there? <laughs> and uh, I ran across an article by linguist Paul Newman from Indiana University. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he said the following, quote, uh, how far ideophones deviate from the normal systems will vary from language to language, in some cases more, in some languages less. But in the final analysis, ideophones are part of the structure of a specific language and have to be viewed in the context of that language. Okay, so this is kind of against the idea of like an overarching class of ideophones and more like they're specific to the languages where they occur. Yeah, I mean, he's not, I don't want to make it sound like he's completely poo-pooing on the idea, but like basically what he's, he's maybe recommending caution and, like, overanalyzing their importance, I guess you would say. Okay. Uh, for instance, he points out that ideophones are extremely important in certain, certain African languages as well as Asian and Native American languages. But he argues that in focusing on what's different about ideophones, he thinks that scholars tend to overlook, quote, the simple notion that to a great extent ideophones are part and parcel of whatever language they belong to. Hmm. So, again, he's not, you know, 
saying, I don't believe in ideophones, but he's, he's questioning maybe to what, you know, what amount of emphasis is, uh, is appropriate. Okay. Uh, and in looking around for other tidbits on the topic, I, I ran across a very interesting paper by Gary uh, Lupian and Daniel Casasanto in Language and Cognition from 2014 titled Meaningless Words Promote Meaningful Categorization. Oh, I think I know where they're going with this. I like this. Yeah. So the, the, the common thread here is that we're talking about non-arbitrary word-to-meaning mappings. Okay. So this would be back to kind of like neuro-neuro. Like if, yeah. if people are detecting an inherent sliminess about the word, just the sound of the word itself. Right. And so they're, they're, they start exploring this in the context of just pure nonsense words. Uh-huh. And so they bring up the nonsense words of one of the great nonsensical writers uh, of all time, and uh, at least in terms of some of his word choices, that being Lewis Carroll. Oh, yeah, the Jabberwock. Yes. In fact, yeah, they, they quote the Jabberwocky. Uh, Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. Uh-huh. So there's some great nonsense in there, but to just focus on one in particular, slithy is not a word. And yet, quote, the nonsense words of Jabberwocky are made meaningful by a combination of phonological cueing and syntactic and uh, distributional information. So slithy is used as an ad- in an adjective frame and has phonological neighbors, lithe and slimy. Okay, so there are some cues here, right? Like the words in the Jabberwocky, while they're not English words— mm-hmm. It's also not just like pure sound from out of nowhere because they often are – they sound a lot like other words that we do know the meanings right. of. Right. So it's kind of this idea that a, like a new word, a nonsense word doesn't quite work in isolation. And this actually brings back our squirrel episode and sort mm-hmm. of our uh, un- re- our unearthing, I guess, of the term skug. Right. Or actually skug was a proper – name for a squirrel. Right. It was what Benjamin Franklin uh, basically believed that the people in England called their pet squirrels. Like it, saying a bunch of skugs would be to squirrels what it would be to say like a bunch of rovers referring to dogs. Right. And so uh, when I started using it in my household, uh, just as a, a general term for squirrels, mm-hmm. uh, uh, my wife uh, had, took issue with it. It's like, that sounds a little like dirty or something. You know, it sounds like you're 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 using profanity against the squirrels. It sounds like an insult or something. Yeah, yeah. and so in cases like that, you have to realize, well, the word skug does not exist in isolation. If it sounds a little bit like this word or that word, mm-hmm. uh, or even just certain sounds from other words, then— Well, it does incorporate ug, as if you're going like ug, gross. Yeah, yeah. Or skug—I guess part of the appeal of skug to me is like it also sounds like skull. Uh-huh. And so much of sounds that— Sounds tough. Yeah, so much of those episodes dealt with how tough and— uh, and, and how uh, and how likely they are to eat the contents of another animal's skull, that sort of thing. <laughs> not um, all of them. Not all. But anyway, back to this paper. They conducted a lab experiment using the words food and krelch. Oh, krelch is grape juice. It's my favorite brand. <laughs> and they applied these words to two distinct alien species um, that they you know made up for the experiment and asked the participants to come up with real adjectives to describe them. So they're basically saying, hey, there's an alien known as the Krelch. Mm-hmm. Describe it. Come up with some adjectives to describe what this creature looks like. Or you there, think about the fooves. And uh, so they ended up uh, uh, the, describing the Krelches as uh, pointy and narrow. And, what do you know? That's got a hard K sound in yeah. it. Yeah. And then guess what the fooves were shaped like? Well, there's an ooh sound. So it's rounded lips, sort of front of the mouth, long vowel. That makes me think it's soft, pillowy. Yeah, yeah. Round and plump. That's what they said? Yeah. They, and they say, quote, the results expand the scope of research on sound symbolism and support a non-traditional view of word meaning according to which words do not have meanings by virtue of a conventionalized form meaning pairing. Rather, the meaning of a word is the effect that the word form has on the user, user's mental activity, which I think is a nice way of summing up some of what we're talking about here. Like, what does this word do to your mental activity? Like, what, what additional adjectives, what additional words is it summoning, and what basic characteristics is it summoning into your mind? And then you're forced to piece together. Like, I can imagine very faintly, like it's not a distinct picture, but I, without even reading any of the adjectives listed in the paper, I kind of have an idea of what the crouch looks like and what the foove looks like. In a broader sense, you know what this makes me think of. So I like the idea of what they're suggesting here, that like words can have a sort of like generalized mental activity impact even if they have no lexical definition. Uh, 
it makes me think about the way that – I don't know if you remember, especially I, – I had this experience all the time when I was a kid of finding jokes funny even though I didn't get them. Oh, yeah. You know about this? Like when you would hear a joke that was like an adult joke mm -hmm. that had references to things in it that you didn't understand. So a joke is made by making sense of something, but you don't get the sense and yet it's funny anyway. Sometimes it would be really funny even though you didn't get it at all. Oh, I would get this all the time watching Mystery Science Theater 3000 as a kid. Because a lot of – they were a lot of pop culture references uh -huh. to shows that I was maybe not quite old enough to have seen just because I wasn't watching television uh, as a child. You know, I wasn't watching television when Joe Hodgson was watching television when he was my age, that right. sort of thing. So I didn't necessarily get the jokes, but I found them hilarious. And to this yes. day, there are still – a lot of the jokes I've I've researched or I've come up to speed on, but occasionally I'll be rewatching an old episode of MST, and there'll be a joke where I'm I'm laughing out loud, and I still have no idea what the connection is there. I'm right there with you. That happens sometimes with MST, especially, but mm -hmm. it it just happens sometimes. You don't get a joke, but it still involuntarily triggers laughter. It's just yeah. funny. And it's not even always like you, you could maybe explain it like what if it's just like social laughter, like you're in a group, right. other people are laughing. But it I don't know. It happens to me when I'm like all by myself. There's nobody else there and it's funny. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think language has this power of it has an effect on our brains even when we don't fully understand the lexical or, or syntactic significance of it. And that's really interesting. Or sometimes maybe we can only get vague hints of the lexical significance, but it's it's like it, it's having an impact anyway. It's the same way that, um, you know, you can listen to poetry in another language mm -hmm. and it can be great. Like you literally don't understand what they're talking oh, yeah. about. Or, you know, I, I think I can admit this, especially since I've heard the uh, Columbia linguist John McWhorter admit this too, that like most of the time if I'm like – if I'm listening to Shakespeare performed, mm -hmm. I'm not catching the meaning of everything. I mean, like, I, I don't know if you have this experience, too. Like, I, I sort of can basically follow the action, but, you know, like, half the lines go over my head. And yeah, yeah. I'm like, wait, I, you know, I couldn't follow the sense-for-sense sense meaning of every statement made by a character in a Shakespeare play because there's a lot of antiquated language in it. And sometimes, like, the the rhythm, you know, the iambic pentameter or whatever, or the rhythm and stuff in the in the writing – makes for very sonically beautiful writing that is is creating pleasurable feelings in my brain, but I'm not always following the literal sense of what is being said. Yeah, I would always have that experience in, in college taking Shakespeare classes. You'd end up, I feel like I'd always end up having like two different readings or two different viewings of the same uh, play or the same scene. Yeah. There's the the version that you you take in before you've done a deeper reading. And then you get in, you read the text, you read all the footnotes about what, what this word uh, means or what it's referring to or what it would have meant in the, the context of the time. And then you're left with this, you know, ultimately enriched understanding of what the play is, but it is a slightly different experience. Yeah, the, the, that is really interesting. Uh, one thing that I think is really funny that uh, I, I mentioned that that comment by John McWhorter, but I've heard him recommend watching Shakespeare plays in another language, hmm. like where where somebody's gonna, done a good translation into another language of Shakespeare if you speak that other language. Like if you speak Vietnamese and somebody's done a good Vietnamese translation of Hamlet, watch that. He says that huh. sometimes that, that can be even better than watching Shakespeare in the original English. How about watching the uh, German language uh, episodes of Monty Python? Have you ever done that? <laughs> no. Oh, they, they cut at least one, maybe more. I don't remember the, the details on it, but mm -hmm. they cut at least one German language episode where it wasn't dubbed in German. They performed all these skits again in German. Is it funny? Um, I, yeah, I mean, it can't help but be funny given that concept. I don't know if it's necessarily funny beyond just I mean, if you speak a little German, you can certainly pick up on some of the words. And, of course, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of similarity between the, the German language system and the, the English language system. Uh, but ultimately, I would say it, it, it always felt just kind of like surface level uh, amusing to someone who doesn't like speak German uh, at all. You know, what is funny, though, is a non-French speaker, Eddie Izzard's bits in French. Huh. Okay. 
Have you ever seen those? No, I haven't. It's a show for an English-speaking audience, but he does a long stretch of the show just in French, and it's really funny. Hmm. But anyway, uh, I wanted to come back at the end here to just briefly discuss a little bit about, like, what we might learn from idiophones. One interesting point that Robson makes in his uh, Eon article is about language acquisition in infancy. You know, obviously, idiophone-type words are useful to speakers of all ages. Mm. Everybody uses them. But he wonders, you know, could they be especially useful when a baby is acquiring language for the first time? Like if certain sounds innately for some reason or another signal associations with certain images or tactile sensations or types of movement, could it be that we instinctually use these associations to help young children learn language without realizing it? Hmm. Like think about the ways that parents tend to say things when talking to young children like teensy-weensy instead of small. Well, I, I, I'm going to speak for at least some segment of the, the, the parents out there and say I never used the word eensy-weensy. Well, a lot of parents do, though. But, I mean, but you yeah, hear that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the whole, yeah, the whole topic of, of, for lack of a better word, cute talk mm-hmm. uh, is, is very fascinating to me because, uh, I mean, I, really, I would like to come back and do, we, we've touched on it before, talking about... Um, um, uh, a little bit about about talking cute. I think we did. Uh, uh, it came up a little bit in the episode about whining. Whining, if yes. There's yes. like a there's sort of like an embedded language between parent and child where yes. like the parent uses like an elevated tone, like higher pitch terms and certain kinds of things when mm-hmm. talking to a kid, and then the kid does it back when wanting attention from the parent. Right. Yeah. But I would like to come back and dis- discuss this. The thing that I'm going through now is experiencing like. Uh, my, my child who's in first grade will – suddenly he'll need to – he'll talk in this cute voice. Like mm-hmm. he'll be using terms that are – they're a little cutesy-wootsy, you know. Mm-hmm. But but speaking in a way that we never spoke – we never spoke to him like that. We never spoke like cartoon characters. We didn't encourage him to speak like a cartoon character. And granted, you know, you, you can pick up all this stuff from your classmates, from TV shows, et cetera. There are so many different, uh, you know, ways of getting information at this age. But – but uh, I know there have been uh, there, there have been papers written on like tr- trying to figure out exactly why uh, kids about this age range why they do this because mm-hmm. uh, it seems to be a pretty widespread thing. So that's one topic I would I would love to return to if, if only for my own sanity. Well, I mean, I think it's clear that some of these types of terms that parents use in this cutesy talk are sort of sound symbolic, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're versions of idiophones in one way oh, yeah. or another. Robson cites research by Mutsumi Imai at uh, Kyo University in Japan and Sotaro Kita at the University of Warwick in, in the UK that um, one- and two-year-olds, quote, when given a sound symbolic word, were more likely to direct their attention at the appropriate object or movement. And also that sound symbolic words uh, for things were easier for children of this age to remember later after they had learned. Interesting. Huh. And then uh, for a deeper dive, I guess I'd, I'd recommend people go and read this article themselves. But I just wanted to mention he ends sort of by talking about the question, which is just a hypothesis at this point, of whether sound symbolic types of words could have been there at the genesis of human language. About this question we asked at the beginning, where did the first words come from when there were mm. no words but, you know, that had existed before for things to derive from? The question is, would words that inherently for one reason or another evolve evoke feelings and evoke sensations just by the sound of them, would those kinds of words form a bridge from humans with no language to the mostly arbitrary lexical languages that would come later? So on like a very simple like survival basis, you could imagine like a uh, like a kiki sound is attention, attention. Yes. And then a booba sound or whatever is more calm of a down. calm down. It's yeah. chill. Everything's good. Like basically get into some of the theories about like the communication of laughter. Yeah. Laughter being a, a way of of instantly saying, oh, the thing that I thought was going to kill us is not. It's not kiki. It's booba after all. Ha. Huh? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean like uh, that, that the first sounds or the first words could have been things that were like phonemes that – create a certain sensation or sort of evoke a certain kind of image or feeling and that later on they have more fixed lexical definitions. Yeah. And that these sounds perhaps are like 
potentially like some of the first building blocks of of more powerful words and concepts, you know? Yeah. Like is is something that's booba booba is like it's super comforting and uh, uh, chill and something that's kiki 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 is like three times as rough or something that's booba kiki is soft at first but has like a hidden barb to it, (laughs) you know? Uh, You know, obviously you can extrapolate from there and imagine like language systems building up based on that. But the funny thing is, of course, I mean, we have no idea if this is actually correct about this being the yeah. origins of, of language. But if that were in some way true, the funny thing is we don't like run out of uses for these types of words as we get lexical languages. Mm-hmm. These words just continue to be as useful as they ever were or more and more useful all the time. Yeah. I just thought of a great one in English. Okay, let's have it. Icky. Icky, yeah. Isn't that a great good. word? Yeah. There's no icky sound that icky is mimicking, and yet icky is like a deeply evocative word that conjures a feeling. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the word moist. Uh, you know, that's a common uh, common topic of uh, of discussion there. Like, why do people have a uh, like a visceral reaction to that word? I don't know, but we just lost a lot of listeners. <laughs> well, it's just as well because we're at the end of the episode. We're going to wrap it up there. But again, this is something we could come back to in the future. There's plenty more to discuss about uh, about the, you know, the potential origins of language and just how language works. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find links out to our various social media accounts. That's where you'll find uh, uh, the store tab at the top of the page where you can go and buy some cool T-shirts, uh, stickers, etc., with uh, either our logo on it or basic designs that are, you know, based on previous episodes we've recorded, such as the episode about the Skugs. Uh, Likewise, if you want to support the show in a way that doesn't cost you a dime, the absolute best thing you can do is to rate and review this show wherever you have the power to do so, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you've subscribed to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And while you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to Invention as well. That's our other show that explores the the history, the origins, the, and the impact and the legacy of various human inventions. Definitely check it out. If you like this show, we think you'll like that show too. So anyway, thanks to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.